Believe in yourself, cause it starts with you And then everyone else will believe you too And if it looks like you're the only believer around Just keep on believing, don't put yourself down Just believe Our guest this week grew up in Shetfield, Alabama and earned a BS degree in math from the University of Southern Mississippi and an MS degree in aerospace engineering from the University of Texas. In 1964, he joined the U.S. Army and went from sweeping hangar floors to being a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. Named an astronaut in 1978, he flew on two missions and flew untethered in space, one million feet up, becoming the second astronaut to pilot the man-maneuvering unit in space. His name? Brigadier General Robert Bob Stewart. And I'm Jack Rasula, and this is Anything is Possible on 760-WJR. I'm Jack Rasula. This is Anything is Possible. We're talking to a genuine American hero, General Robert Bob Stewart. General, welcome. An honor to have you. Well, thank you, Jack. Pleasure to be here. Can we start by talking about your childhood and your mom and your dad, please? Oh, yes. I'd love to talk about that. Uh, In short, I I had a childhood that would make Opie Taylor seem like a juvenile delinquent. (laughs) Uh, It it was the best childhood ever, growing up in a a river town in North Alabama, hunting and fishing uh, with my grandparents. My father was, uh, of course, in, over in Europe during World War II, so we lived uh, with my grandparents. What's the biggest thing you learned from your mom, your dad, and your grandparents? You know, it's really hard because when you're that young, it's hard to track lessons. But I learned to pay attention to my elders and the guys that knew more than I did. And I guess I learned that uh, because my grandfather taught me how to shoot when I was very, very young. And uh, understanding that they had the wisdom and I could hurt myself if I didn't obey them, that was a turning point for me. Where did you get your love for flying? Oh, I've always loved flying. Uh, as a matter of fact, like all little boys, probably all little boys, I built model airplanes when I was young. Uh, after building airplanes and trying to understand how they worked, uh, then I began checking out books from the library and getting serious about learning how airplanes functioned. And uh, I went to my grand, my father gave me $150 for Christmas one year and said that uh, as far as that could go, I could fly, but I had to be on my own after that because he couldn't afford uh, to give me any more. Uh, so I guess it began with building model airplanes and becoming curious. All right. In 1964, you enlist in the U.S. Army. Why so? Well, I didn't enlist in the Army. Uh, I was a ROTC cadet at the University of Southern Mississippi, so I knew what I was doing a long time before that. 
uh, as going in as an officer, you know, you're you're never in an enlisted uh, status. Why did I do this? Oh, I don't know. Uh, my dad was in the army when I was a very young boy, and my mother would take me in arms and go on to the troop train so that we could travel uh, to be near dad while he was training in the United States. Uh, so I guess I probably peed on the laps of half the Third Army before they went to Europe. Uh, at any rate, being around these soldiers, my blood sort of began to have an olive drab attempt to it uh, when I was two or three. All right. You became a helicopter pilot. The helicopter was invented by a man, a Russian man, Igor Sikorsky. Talk to us about flying helicopters. Oh, flying helicopters is an entirely different experience uh, than flying an airplane. Uh, after f learning how to fly airplanes in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, uh, I really felt sort of disappointed to go and fly helicopters because to me, helicopter at that time was just this machine that uh, thrashed its way through the air rather than flying majestically like an airplane. Boy, did I have a attitude adjustment to go through. Uh, the helicopter is a very much more difficult thing to fly than airplanes. Airplanes all basically fly the same. Helicopters uh, try to trick you. In what way, General? The helicopter is just a very difficult machine to fly. You, you're busy with both hands and both feet and your brain, hopefully, the entire time you're at the uh, controls of a helicopter. Now, if there's a, a control in the helicopter cockpit called the collective control. You can sometimes get away with not holding on to it all, at all times. Uh, you just friction it down, and that's your power setting on the helicopter. But the cyclic stick you can never let go of, and the, and the, the anti-torque uh, pedals, uh, you don't actually move them a lot, but every time you change collective setting, you have to change the cyclic setting. And uh, I mean, excuse me, the uh, anti-torque setting. And you go backwards and forwards all this. It's like a, a kabuki dance in the cockpit all the time with a, with a helicopter. We're talking to General Robert Bob Stewart. He served in Vietnam from 66 to 67. And was a helicopter pilot. We'll talk about that when we come back. And I'm Jack Krasula, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. Welcome back to Anything is Possible. I'm Jack Krasula. We're with General Bob Stewart. General you flew 1,035 hours of combat time during the Vietnam War from 66 to 67. Tell us about that period in your life. It was a very, very stressful uh, period, uh, obviously. Uh, when I got to, into country, uh, I wanted to fly armed helicopters. And I was disappointed to learn that I had to fly two months of transport helicopters before I would be eligible to go to the gun platoon in my company. Uh, 
Well, I couldn't stand that. So one afternoon I went down and I begged the gun platoon leader to take me on early. And I don't know whether it was the way I was licking his boots at the time or whether he recognized that I would be an excellent gun pilot. Uh, he, he took me in early. So out of the uh, 12 months I spent in uh, Vietnam, uh, I flew uh, gunships for 11 of those. I quote you now, over 29% of the wounded ground troops in World War II died. In Korea, it was 263 By Vietnam, we got it down to 19%, due largely to the helicopter. The stuff you saw, Bob, had to be awful day in and day out. It was awful, Jack, and I would never recommend it to anybody, uh, except that, you know, when you sign on uh, as a soldier, you sign on to do the bidding of the government. My job was executing foreign policy, not creating foreign policy. So uh, while I I do believe that we probably should not have been in Vietnam like we were, uh, I had a job to do, and and I did it. How did those? How did that year in Vietnam affect your faith? Well, it it really didn't. I was not a Christian uh, when I was in Vietnam, which uh, kind of frightens me, because if I'd have been killed over there, I would have been uh, doomed. But uh, God looks out for the people that he has given to his son. So I was brought through that uh, very traumatic experience uh, without any... Well, I got shot twice, but, you know, that that hurts a little bit. But uh, uh, as far as mental uh, awareness of things going on around me, uh, it was just uh, a job that I had to do, and I thought that I was going to do my job and get as many of my people through to see tomorrow as I possibly could, and that became my aim. The Vietnam Memorial. Have you been there? And what are your thoughts? Yes, I have. If so, what are your thoughts when you go? Very, very moving. I didn't expect that. I thought that a simple, uh, long black wall with names on it wouldn't be much of a memorial. But when I was standing there, and particularly looking at all the little gifts that were left by uh, people visiting there to, to make rubbings of their kinfolks or their friends off of that wall. It was very moving. After you came back from Nam, you become an experimental test pilot. Talk about that chapter of your life. Well, that was an interesting chapter, and, and one of the, probably my number two experiences in my three careers that I basically had, uh, because you get to fly aircraft that aren't quite housebroken yet. And the one thing that you can be sure of is that sometime during the day, uh, your aircraft is going to try to kill you. And the, a good test pilot can figure out when it's going to do that and don't go quite there. Stop short of it. Because our job is to uh, keep other people from having to uh, learn the hard way when an aircraft might uh, be overstressed. 
All right, let's go back 54 years. July 20th, 1969, Apollo 11. Where were you and what were your thoughts? Well, I know exactly where I was. I was uh, in um, El Paso, Texas, in the uh, Army Air Defense Officers Advanced Course. And the reason I remember it so distinctly is that my second daughter, Jenny, uh, took her first step steps on the planet Earth uh, the same day that Neil took his steps on the moon. And just to be brutally frank with you, uh, I was more interested in watching her than I was in watching Neil. I figured I could always uh, uh, review the uh, news footage of Neil on the moon, but I could not review, renew the uh, steps my little girl was taking on the Earth. Did you ever meet Neil Armstrong? Uh, yes, I did. Neil was an interesting guy, very, very shy. I understand that uh, because everybody wanted a piece of Neil when you got down. People were pulling him left and right, speak here, do that. Uh, and it just gets old, very old, real quick, particularly for a person uh, with a shy nature like Neil had. All right. Um, how was it that in 1978... You're named an astronaut, one of 35 in NASA Group 8. How'd that come to be? Well, I was a, a test pilot at Edwards Air Force Base, and uh, I missed a couple of uh, schools that the Army, an Army officer has to go to if he is uh, going to have a good career. So I was a little bit mad at the Army, and I was walking down uh, the hallway one day, and I saw this little blue notice on the bulletin board that said that uh, NASA was looking for flight crews. It listed the qualifications. I found that I met all the qualifications, so I submitted my application through the Army uh, with the intent that uh, I would uh, leave the Army, go to uh, uh, NASA, and end my career there. Uh, Turns out that the schools I thought I had missed, I was just uh, uh, selected for them after I had been selected by NASA. So I had to call the Army and say, thank you, but no thank you. I'm, I'm going to become an astronaut. Uh, they, the Army understood that, and as a matter of fact, uh, gave me waivers uh, for things that I missed because of my duties as an astronaut. Uh, we're talking the vice chief of staff of the Army level waivers for doing certain things. General Max Thurman uh, said, uh, don't worry about it, Bob. I want you to stay where you are in the astronaut program, and I will take care of you. And since you're calling me General Stewart, I guess he did. Hmm. We're talking to General Robert Bob Stewart, a soldier and an astronaut. General what was the toughest training in becoming an astronaut? Actually, uh, Jack, when we went down to NASA, the first six months that we had there was one of the most enlightening six months I've ever had. We had world-class uh, instruction on all of the sciences, uh, from medicine to astrophysics, uh, 
and it was just a terribly informative uh, and enlightening experience. Now, the reason they did that is so that we would be in a position to do many different functions on the spacecraft. Uh, you'll find that most of the guys selected as astronauts are interested in a lot of different things. They like the challenge of different things. They're not the greatest experts in the world on any one particular thing, but they're quite versatile. We're talking to General Robert Bob Stewart. Two flights totaling 289 hours, which means 12 days. When we come back, we're going to ask him what a launch feels like. And I'm Jack Rasula, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. This is Anything is Possible. I'm your host, Jack Prisula. We're with General Bob Stewart. General, STS-41B on the Challenger, February 3rd, 1984. Take us back to that day. What was the launch like? Oh, my goodness. You're on the spacecraft about two hours before launch. And you're sitting there as we uh, we don't have very much to do while waiting for the launch. Uh, everything has already been set for us, really. We might have to throw a switch or two every now and then. And we don't hear the uh, 109876 countdown that people have come to expect. All we do is uh, sit there and look at little green numbers countdown on the screen in front of us. Uh, we go into two holes during that countdown, but we weren't, we're running on two uh, separate timelines. First of all, is an actual time that we would like to leave the pad, and the uh, other countdown is where are we in the procedures that have to be accomplished before the spacecraft can launch. We stopped for nine minutes at that at T minus 20 minute point, and uh, the people on the ground are looking at everything in the spacecraft to make sure everything is ready to go. If they, if we come out of the T-minus 20-minute hole, the chances are pretty good that we're going to fly. Um, and we count down one more hold in the, in the count as we go down to T-minus zero. And uh, then you hear a low, moaning, groaning type of sound coming from deep within the Earth. You hear it sounds like, and you look on the instrument panel in front of you, and you see three white lines climbing up to stop at 100%. You have three main engines running at 100%, or 109%, depending on you know what profile you're flying. We flew 109% on my second flight. Uh, the whole stack sways forward because I'm pushing. On the back of this asymmetric vehicle now, of course, I've got I've got a, two solid rocket boosters uh, supporting a huge fuel tank, and I'm strapped onto the side of the fuel tank. So I'm really the whole stack is bent over backwards until you hit this 100% thrust, and then it goes forward. You feel this, and you see it happening on the uh, uh, 
tower beside you. As you come back toward the middle, you hear a tremendous explosion, like boom, and the uh, the vehicle begins to violently shake because I've now ignited two solid rockets. And the two solid rockets are pushing with three million pounds of thrust each, and we have now a total of about seven million pounds of thrust. And uh, it leaves the pad fairly rapidly. Uh, if you remember uh, you seeing the uh, uh, the Apollo capsule launch, it climbed very slowly, uh, what I would call rather magnificently, uh, across uh, up the tower. But the space shuttle leaves pretty quickly. Um, you go uh, with increasing, really, vibrations on the spacecraft, uh, increasing acceleration, pushing you back and up into the seat. Uh, about two minutes into the flight, we have the solid rocket boosters cut off, and things from there on out are very smooth going into orbit. You just feel pushed back and up in your seat uh, because the uh, thrust of the vehicle is actually going through the center of gravity of the vehicle, which is somewhere down in the fuel tank. Eight and a half minutes into the flight, uh, main engines are throttled back, shut down, and you're almost in space, not quite. You have uh, one more step to go. You have to fire the orbital maneuvering engines, which gives you the final increment of velocity that you need to stay into the orbit that you're aiming for. We're talking to General Bob Stewart, who's telling us about the Challenger flight, which started February 3rd, went through the 11th of 1984. Bob, on February 7th, you're going 17,500 miles an hour. That's about 4.86 miles per second. You're a million feet up, 189 miles up, and... You become the second man to use the manned maneuvering unit. Basically, you're untethered. Tell us about that experience. Well, that experience was uh, obviously visually impressive, first of all. That there's no forces on you at that uh, when you're in orbit up there. You're balancing gravity with centrifugal force. So you're just, just kind of floating. In spite of the fact that I'm going 17,500 miles an hour, uh, it hardly looks like you're moving until you look at the ground. Uh, if When you see the Earth moving by very rapidly, you can't help but realize that you're really smoking. Now, flying the man maneuvering unit itself uh, was was probably the easiest thing I've ever done as far as a flying machine go. Uh, test pilot rates handling qualities of a machine, airplane or helicopter, on a handling qualities rating scale going from 1 to 10, 1 being the best possible, uh, 10 being uh, you're going to lose control of it at some time. The MMU was a 1, definitely a 1. The only thing I have ever given a 1 to as far as handling qualities. You're understated. You're understated. All right. This is a dumb question from a layman. You're tracking the Challenger. And it seems to me both of you are going 17,500 miles an hour. And if you just kind of turn a little bit, you get a little behind. How did you ever catch up? 
Oh, it, it, any spacecraft, if it's at a given altitude, will be, has to be, at a given velocity. Very simple equation tells you what velocity that is. So what I'm doing to maneuver the man maneuvering unit is to change my velocity, which means that I'm intentionally changing my orbit. But that orbit, I can see the changes by watching the space shuttle. For instance, if I'm if I am out a uh, hundred yards away from the shuttle, which what NASA told us we were not allowed to go much further than that, uh, and I thrust to come back at, to the shuttle, obviously I am going to be speeding up a little bit so I can catch these for shuttle. If I speed up a little bit, that means I've changed my orbit and I'm going to a orbit with a higher apogee. So I start actually going up. If I did not up this, this uh, upward transition, I would find myself uh, going falling behind the orbiter as I come to apogee, and uh, then I'm coming back down to the orbital altitude, but now I'm miles and miles uh, behind the space shuttle. So what I actually have to do is thrust toward the space shuttle and then see that I am going up by looking at the angle of, that the orbiter is making in my visual perception, and then I push it back down uh, to stay at the same orbital altitude. I will again start to climb. I will push it back down. Uh, so it's really a sawtooth flight path of getting back to the orbiter. We're talking to General Bob Stewart. I quote him now. Becoming an astronaut was just the fruition of a step-by-step -step climb from sweeping hangar floors to flying the MMU one million feet up at 17,500 miles an hour this is a true aerospace pioneer in here, General Robert Bob Stewart. And I'm Jack Crisul, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WGR. Jack Crisula, host of WJR's Anything is Possible, the weekly radio visit brings his 15 years of inspirational storytelling to hardcover. With God, anything is possible. Anything is possible. 15 of Jack's more than 750 tales of defeating odds and achieving the extraordinary. Like Bob Woodruff, whose job covering the war in Iraq nearly cost him his life. And Nick Vujicic, the limbless evangelist who has stunned millions with his message of acceptance and grace. With God, anything is possible. Order now while signed copies are still available at trustinusllc.square.site. That's trustinusllc.square.site. And as Jack says, Make it a great week because with God, anything is possible. Spohol. I'm Jack Pizzula. This is Anything is Possible. And we're talking to a genuine American hero, a soldier and an astronaut, General Robert Bob Stewart. How did walking in space affect your faith, Bob? Well, that's an easy question, Jack. It had absolutely no effect whatsoever. 
As a matter of fact, I became a Christian uh, six months before my first flight. And, and the thing that drove me to Jesus was the fact that my little girl uh, seemed to be at risk of rabies. Now, to tell you a little, a little bit about this, we had a hurricane down in Houston when I was uh, first got down to NASA. Uh, my little daughter, I had told her a hundred times not to feed the squirrels with her hand that one was going to bite her someday. Now, when uh, she did that, she came creeping into the backyard, holding her little finger, and said, Dad, squirrel bit me. Well, now, that's just not really an earth-shattering event, is it? Uh, but God planted in my mind the threat. A squirrel is a mammal. Mammals carry rabies. Which squirrel bit her? My intent was to go get my pellet gun and kill that little squirrel, take it in to have its brain examined to uh, uh, see if it was rabid or um I missed that squirrel from 10 feet away. I missed that squirrel. It was like the Lord was saying, uh, hey, Bob, this is between me, you, me and you. You leave my little squirrel out of it. Uh, about a week later, I had to go to uh, Denver to train to fly the man maneuvering unit. And I got up that morning to leave, and uh, I was thinking, what, uh, <laughs> excuse me, I still get a little bit emotional when I talk about this. Uh, we're going to take Jenny to the doctor. Uh, she woke up with a with a high fever and a, and a very sore throat. But you want to guess what the first two symptoms of rabies are? Uh, but I said, oh, honey, you the, the, there's a hundred things that can cause a little girl to have a high fever and a sore throat. I'm going to go on to Denver. Uh, for the training, and you take her to the doctor, and I'll call you when I get there. So that's what we did. I called her, and uh, I was almost beside myself with fear uh, of what I was going to hear. So I said, honey, how how's Jenny? Oh, she's fine. I uh, wish she's going to go back to school tomorrow. And right then, I got down on my knees beside a bed in a motel in Denver, Colorado, and said, uh, thank you, Lord, for the life of my little girl. Now, what would you have me do? And it's almost like uh, God spoke to me. He came into that room, as far as I know. I had my head buried in the, in the, the bedspread. So I couldn't tell you what he looked like or anything. All I knew is that I was in the presence of a power that I had no right to be in the presence of. And it it, it was five minutes, uh, 15 minutes. I have no clue how long I felt that presence there. But then I felt it leave, and I got up, and I said, Oh, my gosh, what has just happened to me? I think I'm, I might have just been saved what do you want me to do lord and it's like he said well why don't you read my book it's a bestseller and i i did begin reading his book this time uh you know with a view towards 
trying to understand what all of the implications were. I've been still working on that now for quite a few years, uh, and I'm not there yet, but I'm learning more and more. Many scientists and geniuses don't believe in God. Bob, why are you so sure there is a God? I met him one day, Jack. I mean, I, I am absolutely certain, and nobody can ever take this away from me, that uh, he came after me in that motel room in Denver, Colorado. And you say that there are many scientists that don't believe in God, but there are many that do. It's a very difficult thing for a person who is single-string and thinks that we know everything about how this planet works. I think most uh, honest uh, scientists would say, no, we don't know everything. It's that, that decision of whether you want to believe that there is something beyond nature. I mean, that's the meaning of the word supernatural. It's not some spooky occult thing. It just means something that defies a natural explanation. Uh, when I uh, first accepted Christ, uh, I'd been a Christian for about two years. When my pastor at the church we went to uh, asked me if I would uh, teach a class of Sunday school, and he said, oh, by the way, this is a class of all retired pastors. And I said, absolutely not. I will not do that because uh, I don't feel qualified to do anything like that. Uh, turns out that uh, that was probably the worst mistake I've made in my walk with Christ because the guy that did take that class said, thank you, Bob, because all I have to do is start a discussion and sit back and learn. And I, I just... Uh, denied myself that opportunity. I ultimately uh, got to thinking that if I read Genesis 1 and I know a little bit about the Big Bang Theory, I'm, I'm looking at it and saying, uh, they're telling the same story. They're just using a different language. The, the scientist is, is talking about the Big Bang in terms that he understands. And Moses was talking about the Big Bang in terms that uh, people uh, 5,000 years ago would understand. You went up a second time on October 3rd, STS-51J, the maiden voyage of Atlantis. Can you talk about that mission? Well, no, not really. It, it was a classified mission, and it wasn't near as exciting as the first mission, but uh, I really don't know what might still be classified about it. I know some parts of it are unclassified now, but uh, I'd rather not talk about that one. All right. January 8th, 1986. 73 seconds into the flight, we lost the seven crew members aboard Space Shuttle Challenger. You had flown that. You were scheduled to fly it again. Your thoughts, please. It's hard to lose friends. You know, I knew all of those people on board. I, I did not know Krista McAuliffe or Greg Jarvis that well, but I, I, I had met them. The other guys were, you know, part of my class coming into the astronaut program. So it's never easy to lose uh, people. 
like that, particularly in that the way that that happened, because uh, when the the Challenger blew up, now it it did not blow up uh, in the way that people normally think about it. There was no explosion there. What happened is that the uh, external tank got ripped apart uh, by the solid rocket booster as it was uh, rotating around its its uh, thrust bearing on, at the top of the fuel cell. The exposure of cryogenic fuels as they leaked out, gushed out, exploded out of the uh, external tank. Uh, it, it looked like an explosion, but it wasn't something that would uh, kill the people on board. We know that the cabin came out intact because there are photographs of it. So the crew had uh, several minutes just to fall back toward the earth, uh, knowing they were going to die. And that's a very hard thing to, to come to grips with. General Robert Bob Stewart. Thank you for 28 years of service to our country as a soldier, an astronaut, and a genuine American hero. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Jack. Please join us next Saturday. Until then, I'm Jack Krasula. Thanks for listening. And make it a great week, because with God, anything is possible. Spall. Believe in yourself.